Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my co-host Bruce Kelly. We are talking today, first of all, with Tom O'Shea, director at Ceruli Associates, and we're talking about direct indexing. This is a a concept that has kind of taken the asset management space by a little bit of a storm. It's really just a kind of another version of separately managed accounts, but uh, it is gaining a ton of popularity. And Tom has uh, recently done some pretty extensive research on this. I talked to him about it earlier in the week and wrote a little bit about it, but uh, we wanted to have him here to to tell us more about it so uh, our financial advisor listeners can uh, can navigate this space. Tom, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. Oh, great, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Can we, let's get a, first of all, kind of like a top level view of what is direct indexing and, and how does it work? So like direct indexing 101. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So actually, uh, probably a good way to describe this is to talk a little bit about the history because it's been around for almost two decades, but it's got renewed interest. And maybe I can mention why that is after I kind of talk about what it is. Direct indexing was pioneered by Parametric Associates back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And what essentially it is, is it's for people who are interested in passive investing. It's in a separately managed account. And what the investment sub-advisor does is they ask the advisor and their client, what kind of index do you want to have this particular account mimic? And you tell them that. And in a simple case, it might be the S&P 500. And so then the asset manager goes out and creates a set of securities. In the case of the S&P 500, that might be a couple of hundred securities or more. And through an algorithmic process, seeks to achieve roughly the same return patterns and risk of the S&P 500. Now, you'll say, well, that's great. I can own an ETF that does that. But what is most important to these types of programs is that they can be customized for the particular needs of the client and the most popular form of customization by any length, any stretch of the imagination is is, um, taxes. So you come there, you give them your tax situation and through techniques like tax loss harvesting, waiting until gains go long-term, avoiding income generating securities whenever possible, you can actually generate a better after-tax return. And so essentially, you're owning a beta product, but getting this tax bump, and it can be 100 basis points more or less during the year. So that's essentially what direct indexing is. Mm -hmm. It's also um, popular, or it's increasingly popular, I guess, with people that want to invest in specific ESG categories and strategies, correct? Yes, absolutely. So there's a lot of factors kind of driving a renewed interest in this. And ESG is one of those. But what's also happened is over time, a lot of advisors have gotten a lot more comfortable with algorithmic portfolio construction techniques. But also, in order to hold these type of direct index products, you typically have to have a decent sized account. So the minimums for the account for, say, an S&P 500 direct index might be about 250000 or thereabouts. Now, remember, that's just a part of a portfolio. So typically, 
the client would then have to have more assets surrounding that allocated into different asset classes. But recently, with fractional shares, the industry is thinking that we're going to be able to bring this down to a much lower minimum, make it, make it more accessible to a broader swath of investors. And the other thing that's happened is by removing the fees that are associated with brokerage accounts, and you see this happening at Schwab, Fidelity, other places, that the cost of owning these portfolios goes away to the investor. And that's important because these portfolios have a lot of turnover. They, they're constantly looking to harvest losses, sell, buy, replace. But the other thing that's become interesting is ESG. More and more, the industry is looking at ESG and thinking about how can we address that? Because when you think about ESG, it's really idiosyncratic. You know, Jeff, what you might think is morally okay might be morally objectionable to me and vice versa. And, and so people have different notions of what's investing for the good. And having a direct index where you can customize it allows the client to actually have their own unique ESG solution, if you will. Yeah. The the one the, the reason I asked you about ESG is is because if you're talking about doing this for most people currently right now, like you said, it's a it's kind of a high net worth product. Even if minimums come down or they get to fractional shares, still most people have most of their invested assets in qualified accounts. If you got money in qualified accounts, you don't need tax management the way that these things are working. But if you can get the ESG thing rolling, that's where I see it, a lot of potential. Yeah. And in addition to other factors, there are different factor strategies you can do. It's not just ESG, but you know, beyond tax management. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, beyond tax management, beyond ESG, there are other areas that firms are looking to leverage. So it could be something like a factor investing. You know, you could tilt a portfolio towards momentum, towards low volatility. If you have a client who's who really wants to have passive exposure, but wants to have a lower volatility than that comes with just owning the index, that might be a tilt that's happening. So there are thematic portfolios, you know, if you want to invest in certain, I don't know, green technologies or a green portfolio, you might be able to create something like that. All that sort of borders on ESG. Right, right. But there's all sorts of things that you can do to kind of customize the portfolio. Bruce, you're a, you're a high net worth investor. What are, what are some of your, you have any questions for, for Tom? I'm sorry. I was just over here counting my money, Jeff. <laughs> that's, I know that's so distracting. I, 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 I thought it was the, the flickering of the paper was, was distracting everybody there. Yeah. You don't go into journalism to, to get rich, as you know, my friend. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm always curious about, you know, what firms out there are introducing this product and then how do you how do you create this i mean what is the what is the thing what's the widget that's used to hold the the bundles of stocks i mean i can why can't i just go out and bundle my stocks in in this way and is it the algorithm that's proprietary or what so who are the firms that are doing this is it is it Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley or is it Schwab well, or Fidelity or 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 who uh, the biggest, the, the top provider is, is Parametric, which has been in the industry for a long time. Right. Followed their there's been bundles of stocks period. out there for years, right? Yeah. There's been... yeah. No, absolutely. 
And if you think about what this, there's a lot of there's a lot of people in the in- industry interested in this. You've got you know BlackRock recently acquired Aperio, as well as another firm that helps with this type of technology, Spider Asset Management. And, you know you've got JP Morgan. So it's the asset manager first, and then who they distribute it through. Yeah, it, well, it seems it's both the asset managers and the distributors that are interested in this. There's a ton. You know, we even have Vanguard recently acquired. One of these, one of these firms, Just Invest. So that to me was kind of a signature moment. Charles Schwab acquired Motif. So what these firms are acquiring, Bruce, is the technology. So the widget. So the what is it? To answer your question, if you open up the hood, what do you see here? Right. Well, essentially, what you see is an algorithm, linear right. optimization program that seeks to do one thing while constraining the actual portfolio. So what typically is the the and, and there's all sorts of data that's coming into this that's usually coming from third parties like FactSet and other, and other providers of uh, data that shows the risk and return of an individual equity security. For example. It sounds complicated. I mean, it, it is really complicated. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, and, um, and you know, I, in a previous life, worked at Fidelity and uh, we had a similar product. And, you know, uh, I remember the man who was in charge of it had an advanced degree in astrophysics. So, you know, he literally was a rocket scientist. Right. Uh, I mean, a lot of this stuff is pretty sophisticated. But what, what essentially the algorithm is trying to do in the case, for example, of taxes, is it's trying to maximize your after-tax return while at the same time minimizing the tracking error of that portfolio to whatever index is, say, the S&P right. 500. Who's the dominant player in the marketplace right now, other than other than parametric? Who do you think is or may, might be the one or two upper comers? So, Aperio is also a big player, and these these both firms have had a long uh, long term tradition of working in the high net worth space. But Aperio was bought by BlackRock, and Morgan Stanley was well, parametric was bought by Eaton Vance, which was in turn bought by uh, Morgan Stanley. So they are now part of much bigger companies. There's other and when did those that, transactions occur? How long ago? Oh, gosh. You're going to have to – I don't know exactly the date. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, that's all right. That's all right. You know, towards the end of last year, at the beginning of this year, you started to oh, see – okay. So this is all fairly recent then yes. in terms of BlackRock. Because if, if, if you're – in my estimation, if, you're, if BlackRock and Morgan Stanley is getting behind this, you're going to see real – they saw opportunity, obviously, and they're two huge – and very important firms in the financial advice. Business. Yeah, Bruce, this is one of the reasons why we think it's going to grow, right? Because right. you now have firms that have huge wholesaling or sales teams that can go out and educate advisors. And what's been fascinating in the research that we've done is some of these advisors that maybe aren't in the ultra high net worth or multifamily office space where you see a lot of these uh, uh, products being used, they might be like one click down. They're still dealing with fairly wealthy people, but they haven't even heard of this stuff. And these are people who do have a lot of taxable assets and a lot of income and who could benefit from them. So when, you know, when we, when we interview these advisors, they say, yeah, I am interested in this. Or in the case of some other advisors, like for Morgan Stanley advisors, yeah, you know, my firm started to talk about this. It's kind of interesting to me. I think I could benefit from it. So there's a lot of education that still needs to happen. But the fact that these Firms like BlackRock, like Morgan Stanley, are in it, then we really feel that's going to help drive a growth. Yeah, Tom, you have the uh, part of your report, I didn't even talk about this, is your growth projections. 
you've got direct indexing growing faster over the next five years than ETFs and mutual funds. I mean, coming from a smaller base, but yeah. you really expect this to take over, right? Well, well, so there are people who are projecting this is going to be a lot bigger. And I, and I don't want to be one of those. I've been, I remember when, when the robo craze hit, everybody said, you know, <laughs> there were going to be no those good old days, the robo. Yeah, those good old days. How long ago was that? But even going back to when I, I've been in the business long enough, so maybe I'm dating myself. But I remember those E-Trade ads that showed, you know, an advisor schlepping into the office. And, you know, someday you won't have to. I'm, I'm sorry. I know I'm paraphrasing it. Some days you'll never have to deal with an advisor. So let, let, we shall take the, these types of predictions with a grain of sand, you know. Mutual funds, for instance, uh, SMAs were supposed to make them obsolete. And ETFs were supposed to make mutual funds obsolete. Well, guess what? There are trillions of dollars of mutual funds out there. So that's a big caveat, I would say. But we do feel when it comes to actual growth and, uh, uh, you know, off of a $362 billion base of assets, uh, we feel it's going to grow at a a five-year compounded annual growth rate of about 12.4% as compared to what we anticipate ETFs growing at it 11.3% or mutual funds growing at 3.3%. So that doubles what, like every three years, two or three years? Yeah, if you're so at that yeah rate? in about five years, it should be doubled. Right. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Tom, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the one thing I thought was unique and something that somebody brought up in the story I wrote recently about this is that Almost everything about direct indexing goes against the grain of where the asset management industry is going. It's the asset management industry overall is going toward from active toward passive. That's the that's sort of the opposite of direct indexing from from a higher cost to lower cost. And we haven't even talked about the cost yet, but they are higher. And from, you know, towards simplicity, which, as you've already kind of walked through, you know, direct indexing is not is not that simple. Well, actually, I would, I would, I would disagree with that, Jeff. I think it, if you think about it, what direct indexing is, is, well, let's take the passive question for a minute. You're essentially a passive investor. So you, you're not really looking for actively managed funds, but you, but you feel that there's an opportunity to save on taxes. So it does kind of dovetail in with that. This that move towards passive, and the I just you know it's like all things. I go out into my car. I, now I press a button. I don't even have to turn the key, right? It it goes. The same with direct indexing. You know, you're, you you don't need to understand how the engine is. You need to know how to drive the car. And a lot of these. So you're not. We're not asking advisors to create these algorithms, or none of these firms are. They're all. They are. They will all do it for the advisor. But the advisor wants, you know, wants to give input. For example, tax transition is a huge issue in the advisory community. And uh, a lot of these firms can help generate losses to offset gains that might happen during a tax transition. So, you know, there are a lot of moving parts, but the actual engine itself is not something that an, an advisor necessarily needs to be aware of. Right. What about the cost, though? These are more expensive than your... You know, if you want to, you can get the S and P five hundred. You can get the global stock market for eight basis points at Vanguard. <laughs> yeah, so, probably less. Yeah. I mean, I, less. I, there, one of my, I think my former firm, you know, was giving away 
a mutual fund at one yeah. point. It's you can say the name, Fidelity. <laughs> I, don't want, I, I love the company. They were very good to me for many years, so I don't want to say anything disparaging <laughs> about them. And, and, and that isn't a disparaging thing. It just, I think, points out your point, Jeff, which is the fees on these things have plummeted, right? right. So you can imagine what this would cost would be like owning that index and paying that 8 to 10 bips. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to pay another an overlay fee of uh, 10 to 15 bips or thereabouts. It's going to vary depending upon the size of the account. But, you know, remember, you're doing this so that you can generate up to 100 basis points better return than you would have gotten by just simply owning the index. So I, I, I know I sound like a salesman. I guess I was in a former life. So it pays for itself. You know what I mean? And, and, and more than and, that. <laughs> Tom, the research does bear that out. I mean, what's the range of, of returns that the typical type of investor who does own, you know, an S&P 500 type of investment or a Russell 2000 type? What's the range of basis points that they can see in tax savings? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, and we've done a lot of interviewing to try to get on get at this. And most firms say, think about 100 basis points per year. Now, you know, last, when you have like- Do you uh, buy that? Example, do you agree with that or what? Yeah, I do. I do. I've actually, because I've actually in a previous life worked on these types of products. It can be more than that. In the mar- it, it all depends upon the volatility of the market is, is really what it comes huh. down to. The more the market is moving around, the more opportunity there is for tax loss harvesting, which is one of the principal ways that these tax benefits are generated. So, yeah, it's it's hard to really say what exactly it's going to be. And, you know, I used to be a Series 24, so I would hate to now. And it took me a while to actually sit down and say, hey, you you can now predict things and you're not going to go to jail. But, (laughs) you know. I, I would I would say that's a little you know, securities regulation joke there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like a shelter dog when I got when I got to Cerulean and I started to write things like this. I can use these words that I could never use before, you know. But uh, yeah, no, it, it, I would say about 100 basis points is a good ballpark. Huh. Plus I or think, minus. I think if right, Jeff, if an advisor can show his client. Yeah, you know, at the end of the year or after six months, you know, hundred basis points. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah, tax management is always a, a selling point. I got to imagine more advisors are going to be paying attention to this. And uh, I know, I know, Bruce is going to be looking for uh, for some way to get his his billions into this uh, type of direct indexing. Yeah, I know. Well, you're must obsessed be a about with my money, <laughs> Jeff. For some reason, I'm trying to get into your will. <laughs> <laughs> you know something I don't know, obviously. Jeez, I gotta. <laughs> All right, we got anything else for Tom O'Shea of Ceruli Associates on Boylston Street in Boston? Boston, look at awesome up here. Let me tell you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks, Tom. All right, thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Jeff. It was a real pleasure. A lot of fun. Good stuff. Good insights. Okay. Now, uh, good stuff from Tom O'Shea, uh, but now we're going to talk shift over to PPP loans. This has been kind of an <laughs> ongoing little bit of a fiasco. It's an ongoing joke. For, uh, <laughs> yeah, the financial services industry. I know, Bruce, you've written about it. I wrote about it early on. I, I wrote actually a couple of columns saying that I didn't think fee-based financial advisors should be taking any of this money. Bum, and bum, then, bum. Uh, 
a lot That's my of dramatic firms, music. A lot of firms did take the money. Some firms got you know called out on social media in in a big way, and um, so uh, that brings us up to present day. What what is the latest on this, Bruce? I stumbled across some research and a report by two academics earlier this week, Jeff, that I thought you would find interesting Mm -hmm. that really kind of answered a lot of the questions that you and I were bandying about last summer and gave some context and put context or put meat on the bones, rather, about who among the RIA community took PPP loans, right? Mm -hmm. And that stands for, I believe, Paycheck Protection Program, right? Right. And if we all recall, these were offered by the federal government to small businesses with 500 or less employees, I believe, was the cutoff, in order to give everybody a chunk of cash to make sure they could pay people for two months last summer, last spring and summer, so the economy wouldn't collapse completely, right? Mm -hmm. I think there was a total of more than $600 in loans given out 650 billion something like that is the figure that I most recently saw right but these two academics as i said they they kind of they focus on the financial services business and they asked a question about hey who are the rias that that uh, applied for this money and were they you know appropriately were they the appropriate kind of benefactors of this money so let me start with a couple of questions you ready for a quiz yeah. My friend, I, I hope so. This is scary. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't take there, a loan. <laughs> there's around 12,000 to 13,000 federally registered RIAs that met this criteria of 500 employees or less. True. Okay. That's the first question? No, that's a statement of fact. Oh, okay. According to this research. And the, the two professors, the two academics who wrote the study were William Beggs of the University of San Diego and Thong and Harvison of the University of Arizona. All right. And out of those 12,600 or so, how many RIAs applied for the PPP small business loans? Uh, I'm going to go with half. Wrong. Oh. <laughs> but you're pretty good. 3,000. So about a quarter. Okay. All okay. Right. Now, how much money did those RIAs? So we have 3,000 RIAs. Actually, it's uh-huh. 2,999. I don't want to say okay. those nines all the time. So many nines. How much money did they get? Combined? Combined, all total. Man, I'm, let me see. $10 million. $590 million. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I am not in the uh, government Whoa. accounting office anymore. Have a cup of coffee or something, my friend. <laughs> Get the... <laughs> so one in four were got the loans. They mm-hmm. got $600 million, say. Yeah. So 3000 into $600 million goes $200,000. Yeah. Wow. So on average... Mr. or Ms. RIA got pulled out Mm $200,000 from the federal government. This is kind of what you and I were talking about last summer. Yeah. Right. And your argument uh, 
about questioning why these loans for RAs was necessary was what? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, my argument was that most RIAs, most of the industry works on a fee-based model. And the fact that the economy- Not most of the industry. If you are an RIA, you're charging a fee. Right. But I'm, I meant in a fee based on your assets under management. That's what I mean by fee based. So right. if you're a man, if you're Bruce Kelly managing your client's assets and you've got one hundred million dollars under management, whether or not the economy shuts down or there's a global pandemic or anything does not affect your ability to collect fees from your clients. No, so it does not. You, you're not you're not a bakery <laughs> that, that has to close down because of the pandemic. You know, you haven't lost your employees to the pandemic or been shut down by the government. There's nothing affecting your business. Your employees might not be able to come into work because they're sick or because of new rules, but you're still collecting the fees on the assets that you gathered up to that point. So you should still be able to pay your employees, whether they're even in the office. So why do you need to take, you call it government money, I call it taxpayer money, that is really, I said, and I'll say it again, designed for businesses that were impacted by the pandemic. And that's really like your local, you know, your restaurant, your restaurants, yeah. right? Exactly. Your fish shack, your chicken shack, as we call them up here in, in Manhattan, mm-hmm. your local bar or tavern on the corner, your local bookshop, a small business that depends yeah. upon foot traffic, right? Right. For people to come in. I mean, now business has resumed normal to well. More, you know, not normal, but more active status, depending upon where you are in the country. Right. But back then, if we can all recall the dark days, right? I mean, up here in New York, nobody was going out or doing nothing, you know? Yeah, this was my point at the time, too, is that, you know, you got to feel for those small businesses that are really, they're in business primarily to just- And we all know people who own these businesses or work there. And and then you've got, on the other side of this, you got these financial services firms, big or smaller, that are much more savvy in terms of navigating to get these loans. And a lot of them hustled right in there and said, that's free money, I'm going to get on it. When nothing changed in their business model, that really just ticked me off. And you've got these people running, you know, pizza shops on, you know, in, in Manhattan. They're like, well, we're really out of business. We've really stopped taking in money. We yeah, really I actually know money. guys, accountants and, you know, brokers, stockbrokers and the like who, who, you know, went into these local businesses and said, let me, let me help you. <laughs> yeah. You know, with, you know, I'm thinking of a few uh, uh, watering holes of mine in my old days in particular, mm-hmm. you know that these guys I know just kind of went into these bars and said, let me help you with the paperwork, you know? So, and, and th- I had an off the record with a conversation with the owner of a broker dealer at the time. And, uh, he, he said to me, what am I going to do? It's, it's free money. I get two months of free payroll here. Exactly. You know? That's, I, you know, some things are legal and they're still wrong. <laughs> Well, twenty five percent of those RIAs. I found that fascinating. You you pegged it at fifty, and 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 that that's a great guess. But twenty five percent. Now we have a little more information that you might be interested in from this another, study. Another quiz. It's um, well, we'll see how you do it. I just might <laughs> give you a a, a candy, a All right. candy or something like that. 
as a reward. So the the title of the study was Fraud and Abuse in the Paycheck Protection Program? Question mark. Evidence from investment advisory firm. So they were looking for abuse, right? Mm -hmm. Beggs and Harvison here. And what they found is that 6% of those uh, 3,000 firms, so that would be 6% of 3,000 is about 180, I guess, gouged the system, Mm -hmm. right? And so how did they do that? Well, they either overinflated, most likely overinflated their payroll, right? So even though they, they may have said, we're paying our set, or they could have said, they could have reported to the PPP program more payroll than they were actually paying to their people, right? Or they had histories of regu- regulatory problems, which could have made them questionable. And there was also, again, according to this study, there were <laughs> there were 53 RIAs that got more than one loan. My friend. Oh man. <laughs> so <laughs> the the tune of the gouging of our tax dollars was 36 million dollars, mm-hmm. my friend. So that's yeah. what they that's what these two academics estimated. And the quote was Investment advisors abusing the program were significantly more likely to to disclose a history of past fraud and other legal and or regulatory misconduct. Yeah, makes sense. That's not surprising, I guess. Well, you know, who's going to who's going to grab the big pile of money? And you got to remember, too, that these loans were like green greenlit in a matter of days. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the turnaround on this was was incredible. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think, I think that people applying for a mortgage have to go through them, which, you know, you oh my God, changed yes. house in the past year right. Yeah. Right, or so. So, I mean, I think you go through a heck of a more rigorous process with your bank than you do with the, with, with the PPP, you know, small business administration. Yeah. Well, and, and to, you know, to be fair, the purpose, the original purpose of the PPP loans was it, it it had to be done quickly. You know, it was an emergency yes. situation for a lot of people that actually yes. had to shut their businesses down. But fee-based financial advisors, I just, you know, nobody has made the case to me yet how they were they were impacted enough where they had to take <laughs> this money. And, you know, I know some firms have been called out out of respect for those. I'm not going to mention too many on the, or any on this right. podcast, but, you know, you kind of get what you play for. That's that's what happens. And um, I don't really feel sorry for the firms that were called out because, like I said, make the case to me or somebody how you needed that money more than the beauty salon that had to stop doing business for a year, had to close down and maybe go out of business forever. Well said. All right. Get that off my chest. Now I can sleep better tonight. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I brought that to you because you could really kind of sink your teeth into that. Yeah, well, you know? I'm passionate about that one. You know that. <laughs> hey, Jeff, before we sign off, I just want to mention to everybody that we're taking a two-week hiatus and coming back after Labor Day. That would be on September 13th. That's right. 
So I know you're 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 taking a little break, right? Yes, I am. I'm taking a little bit of time and going back up to to Michigan for some golf and some fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm taking I'm taking the kids down to uh, Maryland to hang out with my brother and and other family people down there. All right. Okay. So then we just wanted to wrap up the podcast for this week. As you know, if it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Tom Shea from Cerulli. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us, please, on Spotify. Jeff's Twitter handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine's at BD News Guy. Reach out. We would love to hear from people out there. Really, we would. <laughs> And uh, like I said, we'll be back in two weeks, September 13th, ready for a really busy fall. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.